Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. My guest this week is Bryant Mason. I've had Bryant on the podcast a few times in the past, and he's one of my favorite guests. Bryant is a certified crop advisor who specializes in organic cannabis nutrition. He has spent the last five years working to combine precision laboratory techniques with data science in an effort to unravel the complexities of cannabis soil and crop nutrition. Along with his work on soilless media, he also helps outdoor cultivators around the United States with nutrient management and cover cropping. If you would like to do soil testing, help with interpreting a soil test, or are interested in an online course on these subjects, his website is www.soildoctorconsulting.com. And if you want to save $100 on his course, you can use the discount code KISORGANICS, all one word. And I've taken his course and was recently going back to review some of the content. It's excellent and I highly recommend it for anyone wanting to do a deep dive on cannabis fertility and reusing your soil. Now on to the show. Okay, we are jumping back in with part two of my conversation with Bryant Mason talking about soil fertility and cannabis nutrition. Why don't we talk about potassium, but briefly? It's quite loquacious with the calcium, so we can, we can condense it. So potassium, I've been thinking a lot about due to the fact that for years, I've recommended potassium sulfate for potassium. And that's because, um, well, two reasons. One is that I, I always suggest recommend, I always suggest compost. Um, well, not always, I'm sorry. I also suggest compost, which is a major source of potassium, but the content of potassium varies between composts. And um, when I look at a soil test, it's often in the middle of a round. And so they, it needs potassium immediately, sometimes going into flour. Um, so potassium sulfate is the best organic option. Potassium silicate is not technically organic when it's soil applied. It's allowed in certain circumstances as a um, fungicide, foliar applied, um, but nutritionally it's not allowed. So potassium sulfate is kind of the, the product. Um, and I've made a couple changes in the last year in my thinking around potassium sulfate. I still think it's a great product, works very well. Um, but I believe growers should verify their need for potassium with a tissue test. So if, I, if they get a recommendation that says use this much potassium sulfate, I, it, best practice would be to verify with a tissue test because oftentimes I'll see relatively low potassium, at least below my target level, but that's, there's sufficiency in the tissue test. And so an application of potassium sulfate is not necessary. Um, and I haven't seen that many tissue tests that show deficient potassium. So it's possible what I'm reevaluating my soil targets slightly and I, I might lower them. What's yeah. So that's just a, that's just one change I'm thinking about. Um, the other thing is because of that high solubility of potassium sulfate, I believe growers should increase the frequency of application. So let's say the soil doctor tool recommends a cup per cubic yard of potassium sulfate, which would be a lot. I don't recommend doing a cup all at once. The more you can break that into four to 10 applications, the better. Um, because again, you're reducing the salt stress, but also when you flood the soil solution with that much potassium, it will completely change the cation uptake dynamics. So 
when it comes to Epsom salts and potassium sulfate, Epsom salts usually not used as a, I don't recommend it very often with a, as a soil dredge. Potassium sulfate I do. I think those two you you increase the frequency. Um, and then the final thing is I do think it's good to be constantly building potassium levels, slow releasing, um, more organic, meaning carbon-based sources of potassium using alternatives like compost and alfalfa meal. The reason alfalfa meal is so great, and I know you've always used a lot of alfalfa meal, and I've always, I recommend it as kind of one of this, the few default nitrogen sources when I write recommendations. Um, historically because of this more slow releasing nature of it and the tricontinol and some of the biostimulant effects. But now it's because it also brings in a lot of potassium because when you apply alfalfa, it doesn't have a ton of nitrogen in it. And so you're applying a large quantity and it also brings in a lot of potassium that's slow releasing. I would say green sand, but green sand, I don't think in cannabis makes sense because heavy metals. Um, so just always be applying high potassium compost or just any moderate potassium compost and green and use alfalfa meal as one of the nitrogen sources. Um, I would say that the, the second place, sort of the silver and bronze metal would be insect frass, which I know you love, and granular poultry, which I love. Those two both bring in about 4% um, uh, potash, K, K2O. So yeah, I think those are the things I'd, I'd, I'd say about potassium is is just trying to reduce potassium sulfate, um, not entirely, but thinking about other sources as well. Yeah, I I love potassium sulfate. I mean, it's one of my favorite amendments. I think it's something that every grower needs to have in their pantry. Um, in fact, I want to do a, a talk on that here soon. Like the, the products oh, cool. I think every grower should have, and they're not really products, you know, they're things like gypsum and uh potassium sulfate they're not expensive but you want to have them on hand for when you need them um but like you said 50 percent potassium highly soluble if you see a potassium deficiency you want to address one it is the fastest and best way to get potassium into into the plant Um, the what you brought up i think is really interesting in terms of splitting up your applications to lower the salt stress um I want to, I want to think about that a little bit and and see how I can incorporate that. Um, you mentioned compost and while I think compost is great, I have moved away from recommending it quite as much, um, for a few reasons. So one, you're reintroducing fungus gnats that next cycle on a commercial scale. It's just annoying and can get expensive with all the beneficials and other stuff. I mean, relatively easy to deal with, but still, uh, you know, annoying uh, bringing in bugs and it's, it's a, it's a a vector for pathogens potentially. So I I've stopped doing compost additions every cycle, um, just for that reason. And the fact that like, not everyone tests their compost compost can be inconsistent. So even though they have one test showing it's high potassium, one cycle, the next cycle that that compost source could be something totally different. Um, I still love compost. I just, I'm not quite as enthusiastic about it as I used to be, um, in the past, but just some, just some things for people to think about as they're, uh, determining what they're going to add each cycle. I, I love insect frass, like you mentioned, um, it's clean. It's got good microbial activity and life in it. In addition to having a pretty balanced NPK value, um, but we, you do have to account for the other, the other nutrients in there, the N and the P that you're bringing in. 
Um, and then alfalfa meal, like you said, it's such a low NPK value for the most part. Um, I, the, the N it brings in is pretty negligible and it just has a ton of different other benefits. Um, the triacontinol is interesting because I think from what I, from talking to a plant growth hormone guy, uh, I'm going to butcher his name. It was Jim Gray, maybe it was Jim something or other that I, I interviewed on it a little while back. He was a retired plant hormone guy. And he said that triacontinol breaks down so quickly that unless you're putting out like actual alfalfa and just laying it on the surface, that triacontinol is just not going to make it into the oh, plant. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Um, yeah, that, that could be. I mean, I don't apply alfalfa for the triacontinol. It's just more of just like a... Yeah. And just to clarify, I would only apply, I would not apply alfalfa, insect grass, or granular poultry for potassium. I would apply those, I would choose those products for nitrogen, mm -hmm. knowing that it's going to, a secondary benefit is it'll build uh, potassium. But you always fulfill your nitrogen deficit first. I just, just for listeners who. That's, who, no, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and I, I would add further that I don't like to use potassium sulfate all that frequently um, when re-amending my soil uh, mm -hmm. at high rates. I, I, because it is so soluble, I like to use it during the growth cycle kind of as that like liquid bottled nutrient yeah, sort of exactly. application. It's my band-aid. Except you don't have to use liquid like, bottled nutrients. That's exactly. Well, so my, my liquid bottled <laughs> nutrient awesome. is fish hydrolysate usually. That's right. Is, Me too. Me too. Yeah, that that's my um, go-to when I see a problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I I agree. That's you know, there's a few things I use in bottles, and they're not. They're, yeah, one of them is liquid fish. I love it. Um, yeah, and I would mention with compost for those who have received recommendations from me, you usually don't see compost because I don't recommend it if your sodium's high or your nitrogen's high or your salts are too high, and I've I've gone back and forth about recommending it at all, because if I don't know what it is, I mean, there's just such a wild difference between uh, horse manure and uh, worm castings made in someone's basement. Like it's just, it, it, it varies so much that unless I have a test, which I rarely do, I don't like recommending it. So in addition to fungus snaps, there's a number of other th considerations with compost for sure. Even the carbon nitrogen ratio, like that can really, that can really screw people up quickly. Um, so I don't necessarily, I, because I'm not able to control for all those variables, uh, as just writing a soil recommendation, I too have sort of strayed away from it. But anyway, I just mentioned it because it is a good potassium source. Um, so if people can account for all those other factors, it's something to consider. A absolutely. And I, I think an interesting way to get the amendments out is to use compost, to mix them in with a little bit of compost to get that biology in there when you're top dressing, um, when you're amending, mix it in with a little bit of soil or apply some of those um, amendments into your worm bin or into your compost pile as a way of raising the fertility of the pile itself. Um, but interestingly enough, this is a little off topic too. It's a bit of a tangent, but I've been having this discussion on a um, soil analyst for forum with uh, Steve Solomon. Because someone posted a, um, a a soil recipe that they found online for living soil for cannabis indoors, and so we got in this huge discussion about it. And um, my my point, and I, I think you'll agree with me on this one, is all living soil recipes, all soil recipes, 
should be based around your compost because it is so yes. variable. That's where I always start. Absolutely. So when you see a recipe online that says, you know, 20% earthworm castings or 20% compost, that fraction is going to vary so much and determine what the other inputs are that I don't trust any of these recipes. And I say this as someone, as a manufacturer who sells a nutrient pack, which is designed to be mixed with, you know, either something like ocean forest or ProMix, or, um, you make your own sort of living soil by taking, you know, our mineral nutrient pack and adding compost and peat moss. And even with that, my degree of confidence goes down because that compost can, can, like you said, it can, it can be imbalanced. It can have way too much nit nitrogen, ammonium, uh, you know, potassium, Anything. whatever. Totally. Yeah. So um, I think that's, well, that's why, and that's why I don't like soil recipes and I don't, people have, I can't tell you how many requests I've had for so, like, do you have a soil recipe? It's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why it's because comp the compost variability. Um, so, yeah. And like uh, to kind of piggyback on that is I get requests, like I want to make my own soil mix. And to that, I always say like, that's great. And I, and I just say, but just so you understand the process for me, like for me to formulate a soil is going to take, let's say six months aggressively at best to probably two years realistically before it'd be something that I want to like put out with my name on it. Because the amount, like initially you got to find your compost source, you got to test that. Then you got to mix up a soil um, and see what you get. And then you have to make adjustments. And then once you get everything where you want on the soil test, then you do plant trials and see how that goes. And so, right that process just takes a really long time if you want to do it right. You know, you can't just throw a bunch of things together, th throw a plant in there. And if it grows well, assume that you've got this amazing soil mix. Now, if you're a yeah. home grower, I think that's, that's fine. And I absolutely encourage experimentation, but, um, if you're on a commercial scale, that's just not practical. Um, and, that's well, why and, and I would add too that like the first thing I coach people to do is, to, to not even worry about the chemistry. Well, first you worry about the chemistry of the compost and you test as many composts as you have access to and you, you choose the right sweet or single compost. And then you go, you forget the chemistry, you choose those combos and then you just do like physical tests. So you try to get your percentages yeah. right and you want, you put it in the bed or the pot and you water it and you what and you just you feel it and you watch the infiltration rate and you have to dial in the percentages and then you go back to the chemistry and you just get the base mix right before you do the any of the amendments because to me you want to customize your amendments based on what your um your base mix is and i go through all of this in my course and that like you said the, the process is um potentially totally worthwhile but no doubt laborious and long and involved it's not a simple coots mix or whatever if you really want to do it right it's a process yeah and even coot says like you don't have his mix because you don't have his vermicompost and i think that's really true um mm -hmm. that's why i hear people that say you know coot mix works really well for me and other people that say like this this is a terrible recipe and uh you know it's not balanced at all it really depends yeah, um, right, right, right. Well, let me, you know, can I, can we chat about iron real quick before we talk about oh, yeah, yeah. carbon? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Let's do it. 
Okay, so it's sort of similar. I've evolved my thinking on iron, iron sulfate specifically, but iron in general, because I have observed wildly varying levels on tissue tests of iron. And it's hard to know because iron contaminates both soil samples, but more so tissue samples all the time. It contaminates soil samples sometimes on the paste test because um, little pieces of soil or clay specifically can slip through the filter paper at the lab and it will show a really high iron level in, on a paste test, which isn't a huge deal. What's more important is if you have dust on a tissue test, on any sa tissue sample, that dust can, can go through the, the tissue test and show that you have extraordinarily high levels of iron. So that could be the case. It also just could be that the plant actually will sometimes accumulate huge amounts of iron at different points, mostly further into flower. Um, but sometimes I'll just see really high iron levels and, and sometimes I'll see really low iron levels. And there are some growers that my recommendations of iron sulfate have not been able to effectively address their iron hunger. I don't want to say deficiency because it's not usually not so acute that it's visual. It's usually just we're seeing it in the data. And I can't get that that number to move, and that's almost I'm almost I'm 100% confident because iron sulfate, when you apply it, um, it oxidizes very quickly. Imagine like the the chemical reaction of rusting, and so once it oxidizes, it goes into a an ionic state that's not available to the plant. And so when you drench iron sulfate in a high oxygen soil and in a high pH soil, and when I say high pH, I mean anything over six, it, it could oxidize like immediately, even with a humic substance. Like, you know, when you mix iron sulfate with humic acid and you drench it into a soil pH of seven, I think it oxidizes. I don't see the, and, and the data constantly humbles me because I think I know how to do something. And then I always just follow the data. And sometimes it tells me i don't. And so this is a big learning for me is in, a, in these soils that we're working in, I think iron is oxidizing and very little of it is making it into the plant immediately. It's not to say you shouldn't apply iron sulfate because I do think there's something to say about loading your soil with iron, which will be reduced in the rhizosphere um, or by, you know, in, in, with different sort of magical rhizosphere reactions and organic acids. But I think if your plant needs iron, um, a better technique may be to core the iron sulfate, 50-50 uh, iron sulfate and elemental sulfur somewhere in your root zone in a little pocket. When I say core, I mean like a pocket of iron sulfate and elemental sulfur. And what that does is it creates this little pocket of a low pH environment, really low, like in the fours maybe and at least in the fives and that keeps the iron in a reduced form and you don't what i've uh, learned again in tree fruit production this is a technique i get from orcharding uh orchardists can have an iron deficiency their whole canopy is like that sort of yellow chlorotic look and they core just a little bit of iron sulfate at the base of their trees and it, it works very quickly and their their trees can green up and um yeah, I mean, you could also throw a little manganese sulfate in there, actually. But manganese sulfate, to me, is more effective with a drench. So you create that pocket in the roots. It doesn't need to be homogenous. The roots can just tap into that little pocket and take up iron in the available form. So 
And then the only other thing I'll mention there is, again, there are alternatives. If you use alfalfa meal and blood meal for nitrogen, again, you're using those for nitrogen, not for iron. But in doing so, you're bringing in a lot of slow-releasing, organically complex iron into your your soil system, um, which will help prevent the iron hunger in the first place. I believe, I see this all the time in cannabis. When I, I was growing commercially six years ago or something in Oregon, and I would, the tops of the plants would always be a little bit yellow. And I just thought, because a lot of plants, it's just sort of normal. They always green up eventually, but that sort of top shoot growth, that new apical growth, when it's sort of light color, I always attribute that to iron. Um, but again, I just follow the data and I like to just look at what the tissue numbers say and address it that way. That's really interesting. So I, I haven't thought as much about iron. Uh, Brandon and I, um, Brandon Hudson, who you mentioned before, we've, we've talked about this. Um, and we just look at, we've just always, uh, his point was that, yes, the plant may need a little more iron right there, but that's just because it can't keep up with the amount of growth it's getting at that point. And that's just going to yeah. green up and go away because it does. Um, so we haven't, I haven't really addressed it. The one thing when you said low pH and pocket, my brain immediately just went heavy metals. Like, ah, are we, mm. are we putting <laughs> ourselves more at risk for heavy metal uptake by having a pocket of low pH soil in the rhizosphere? I well, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good, that's a good question. But I would, I would, my mental model to answer that question is that the nutrient uptake is evenly distributed across the entire bulk soil and the pocket is probably less than 1% of the bulk soil. So yeah, you're going to make heavy metals potentially more available in that pocket. And I'm talking the size of your fist. Like, so yeah, the heavy metals be, will be more available in a, in a pocket of soil, the size of your fist, but that's just such a small pocket of soil that unless you had any, a large heavy metal load, I don't think it should matter. It's just so dilute, not dilute, hmm. but it's so small. Um, that's a really interesting experiment. I would love to run it, but I also don't want to then throw off all my soil tests moving forward because well, okay. So that's the, Oh, that's a great point. That is a great point. As soon as you start coring iron sulfate, you, you have to ignore the iron number on the soil test. So if you put your soil test through the soil doctor tool, you have to disregard the iron sulfate recommendation coming out of that tool. And you have to go solely off of tissue tests and visuals because the soil is non-homogenous. So you're either gonna see low iron because when you're sampling your soil, you don't hit that pocket. And so it's gonna show, or you're gonna hit the pocket and you're gonna have really, really high iron on on the soil test. Both of those situations are, are suboptimal and they're not accurate. So you have to go off tissue. Have you done this with cannabis and seen that immediate greening of new growth then where you don't get that? Well, the grow, I, I don't see it, but the growers I work with do. And okay. So people have tried this and seen. I'd, I haven't gotten reports yellowing. of the visual of, of the top growth yellowing. I haven't asked that question. What I see is the tissue test finally moves. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I but they, but they, like... but the grower who did it, did it at a kind of a high, well, a couple have people have done it now, but the first one who did it was, did it at a rate that was um, maybe a little too high. He said they, they seemed to have a little bit more transplant shock, but they grow out, it grew out of it really quickly. To me, that means you lower the rate. I don't think transplant shock is ever good. 
um, especially from a, a fertilizer. So I told him to cut the rate in half and, and do it again. This guy had a really cool guy up in Michigan, worked with a lot, tests like a bandit. And so he's got this amazing body of data and we just, it, it, it was like iron sulfate every round and it, the numbers just wouldn't move. And finally we got him to move with this, this core. That is really interesting. I'll have to think about that. Um, and that's actually a really good segue into the next topic, which is uh, amino acids. Because, um, well, maybe not the best segue, but my point is you'll see products now, and, and we talked about this a little before the podcast, how um, there, there's products out there, you know, primarily with micronutrients um, that are approved for use in organic production. And they're supposedly like organic forms of these minerals. Um, but when you look at the derivation statement, the ingredients, they're all derived from sulfates. So you may have like an organic manganese product, let's say. But when you look at what it's derived from, it's derived from manganese sulfate. So are these products really any more organic um, or really better than just applying the manganese sulfate directly? So I realize this isn't exactly... What yeah, are talking yeah, about, no, but I want good. to touch start there. So the amino chelated micronutrient products that I see that are certified organic are primarily for foliar. Is that what you're referring to? So we're talking Biomin, Albion. Um, yeah, one I was using this year in my orchard, polyamine. So what those are is you're right. They take these just sort of raw mineral amendments, like let's say zinc sulfate, and they combine them with amino acids, probably the same amino acids we're using, which is um, ground up soybean meal, it's pulverized, like soluble soy based amino acids. And that would be the most, I don't actually know how they're made because it's proprietary, but that's probably like the rudimentary way they mix them together and they chelate them. So when you combine those two things, it chelates them. And in theory, it keeps them more available. Um, so when they hit the plant leaf, they're not going to oxidize as quickly. And there's just better um, leaf penetration with amino acids, better uptake efficiency. And so you're getting more unit of nutrient into the plant, which I believe is true. Now, now if the increase in foliar efficiency offsets the increase in cost of the product, I don't know. I've always wondered that. I've always wondered, should I just apply iron sulfate chelated with fulvic acid? Is that going to be way more cost effective on three acres than, than applying Albion metallosate iron, which costs quite a bit of money? Um, so in theory, different micronutrients are chelated better with different individual amino acids. So manganese, for example, is a little tougher to chelate. So they might use uh, an amino acid like pyrin glycine or something. I'm making that up. Um, but are they more organic? I mean, is your definition of organic, like just certified organic? I mean, they're both, both manganese sulfate and, uh, bottled chelated manganese is they're both certified. So I don't know if they're, they're more organic. I mean, you are applying it with carbon, which is way preferable foliar. Um, but you could do that yourself. You could do molasses and a little bit of a touch of kelp and well, not in cannabis product. I wouldn't do kelp, but a touch of molasses and fulvic acid would be a carbon source. Um, 
my issue is there's no way to know if that if how much better they are if that if that uptake efficiency and the and the nutrient use efficiency inside the plant is that much better to justify the cost of of these branded chelated products um, i've always used them but this year i'm breaking my farm in half this isn't actually testing this specific hypothesis but i'm breaking my farm in half and i'm going to do every organic foliar calcium foliar specifically um, including the jadam stuff and and a lot of these branded amino chelated products on half of my trees and i'm not going to do a single calcium foliar on the other half and i'm just curious to see if any of them are really making that big of a difference um, hmm. which let me just this is a tangent and i know i'm talking a lot but i want to just pitch to every grower listening that they should be split testing every time there's an expensive input if you can you can't do too many split tests obviously but you should break your bedroom in half or you should break your field in half or you should break your grow tent in half and do no treatment on half and do the treatment on the other half because it's amazing the level of faith that growers have in products it's amazing and because in part you kind of have to because you just have to believe something and then do it but i'm here to say to argue if if possible break your your room in half and you can be a little less faithful and actually put it to the test i think this is a characteristic i see in so many really good growers who i've spoken to is they're constantly testing something even if it's just one thing one thing at a, i mean preferably one thing at a time split test whatever is your highest cost input that you're not a hundred percent confident is justifiable i couldn't agree more with you it drives me nuts the amount of products that are hyped to this to specifically to the cannabis industry but it's not even unique to cannabis we see it in egg too which is oh, crazy because yeah. i'll go to oh, an yeah. egg conference and i'll be like talking to a guy and be like i'm pretty sure you're full of shit but like you're obviously selling a lot of your product, you know, like you're a business. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it drives me nuts. Well, and and yeah. well, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just, I, I was just going to say that. And even, and I think that the, the salesmen too, they, they, they believe it. So it's, it's hard because when another human looks you in the eyes and they, they have conviction that something works, mm-hmm. there's, there's a natural tendency to, to want to believe them. So I, I don't think it's like, yeah, I don't think it's like a, a, character flaw i just think it's part of human bias and i think we all just should be fighting against it all the time and and to your point i'm testing these foliars primarily because every tree fruit grower in my area is is spending an enormous amount of money on amino chelated foliar sprays and no there's no nobody knows if they actually work they either think they work or they think they don't work, but there's no, there's no trials. There's no evidence. There's, there's nothing. And so split tests are the only way to know. And they're, they're not, they're not scientific in that there's not replicates. So you can't mm-hmm. find statistical significance, but we're not scientists. We're growers. So we just want enough evidence to make the right management decision. So split tests are totally great. And, and 
to your point, realistically, we just have to know what works in our grow, in our environment, exactly. in our garden. Exactly. It doesn't matter how effective it is in New Zealand. You know, it matters what works for me here in Washington State. Um, and there's so many variables involved in that. Like we've talked about, you know, temperature, moisture, environment, water, um, you know, sunlight, all of these things are going to come into play. And when I'm consulting and I walk into a facility and I say, show me what you're doing for IPM, show me what you're doing for fertility. And that list is really long. The yeah, first you know thing I want to do. Yeah. You have no idea. You have no idea what is doing what. Um, I want to, I want to just simplify everything. And then if you want to use that, you know, hype product that you saw on Instagram, fine, but let's work it back in. Let's come back to a baseline and then let's do some of that, you know, split testing, AB testing and see if you're actually getting results from it. Because at the end of the day, all we're doing as growers is trying to address what the limiting factor of growth is, you know, Liebig's law of the minimum, like this idea that, you know, if, if the limiting factor is, the fact that our facility has lights that are, you know, 400 PPFD in flower, it doesn't matter what, you know, what enzyme, f- yeah, yeah, ferment exactly. product, I'm not getting enough light. So, um, and to add to that, you know, I was talking to a grower the other day on scale and every time he does a foliar application, um, for IPM, it's $6,000, you know, what? that's a significant chunk of money that he has to what spend kind of scale? on scale Is this cannabis? Yeah, it's pretty, they're pretty large farm, you know, and that, I don't know if that's strictly just product or labor. I'm pretty sure it was just the product and it was a more expensive IPM product, a a good product, you know, but if he's having to spray these things in, 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 uh, on his crop, it's, it it adds up now for the home grower, it may not seem like much 10 bucks, 20 bucks, you know, whatever for a similar comparative scale. But, uh, there's no reason we can't grow healthy plants for significantly less money um, if we just start thinking about this idea of split testing and-, and Well, yeah, and I would also know. argue, let's just put money aside, which obviously is everything when it comes to a commercial operation, but the only way to become a better grower is to start to tease out what that, what that low-hanging fruit or what that bottleneck is in photosynthesis. So um, if you just wanna improve your general ability as a grower, you have to start to, to, to reduce inputs. That's the only way to do it. Um, and then increase, you know, you're flung, you have to learn, I guess that's what I'm trying to get at is you have to be constantly learning, you know, Kaizen all the time. Otherwise you're not going to be improving yourself like you could. All right. So let's talk a little bit about amino acids. I know it's something that you've been thinking about, you know, we just covered a little bit of how people are using amino acids as foliars because I suppose they have better efficacy. Um, I don't know. Just give me your thoughts on that topic. Sure. So the brief synopsis on amino acids as it relates to plant nutrition is that, well, there's a few things that come to mind. The first is that they're definitely Amino acids are definitely the best source of foliar applied nitrogen. And there's quite a bit of research that shows that, particularly in field crop production, that the nitrogen use, the nitrogen uptake from amino acid sources of nitrogen is by far better than any other uh, nitrogen source foliar applied. So big, big um, proponent of amino acids in foliar. They are 
also there's a, there's this idea of metabolic shortcutting. We've talked about this before, where if a plant does uptake nitrogen in the form of amino acids or any organic form, doesn't necessarily have to be amino acids. Um, plants can actually uptake larger compounds as well. There's this idea that they save quite a bit of metabolic energy by not having to reduce other forms of nitrogen like nitrate or ammonium into amino acids in the plants because they uptake them, they're already in amino acid form. And that is definitely a well-documented phenomenon, um, but not studied very extensively. Um, so research, the research generally shows, I've done a deep dive on um, nitrogen from organic sources, and it generally shows that the maximum nitrogen use efficiency results when the plant uptakes various forms of nitrogen. Uh, and that's because of that metabolic shortcutting idea. So major props to organic production in this regard, because all of our nitrogen is essentially um, being applied in organic form with carbon. So the body of research is sadly lacking when it comes to organic nitrogen. Um, it's organic forms of nitrogen like amino acids have essentially been ignored as a third pool of plant available nitrogen. But there are a few studies that show that when you incorporate carbon-based amino acid nitrogen, it increases nitrogen use efficiency. But I think what's important to point out for the cannabis community is that all organic products are either composed of amino acids or end up as amino acids for a period of time in the process of mineralization. So I think what is confusing or maybe misleading is that, um, we say, oh, I wanna, I wanna use amino acid nitrogen. Well, does that mean amino acids, like a liquid uh, water-soluble liquid nitrogen from soybean or fish that's technically marketed as amino acid nitrogen because alfalfa meal, blood meal, feather meal, all of these things are, are enzymatically digested in the soil and end up in their constituent parts, which are amino acids. So how I think about it is when you're amending your soil with organic amendments uh, that are nitrogen and carbon in, in protein form, those are essentially going to create a little amino acid factory in your soil. So those things, as those mineralize, they are going to end up as amino acids in your soil. Um, and then at that point, the plant will uptake some of the, those amino acids. It's debatable how much of those are amino acids are uptaken. Um, before the amino acids are then converted into ammonium and then nitrate. So all these different, these three different forms all exist in your soil at the same time and all organic products are technically going to contribute amino acids. So it's a little misleading to say, I want amino acid nitrogen because anything organic is in a sense going to lead to that. So whether I buy a soy amino product or soybean meal, I'm still going to be getting amino acids in Correct. my soil because of how they're going to break down. That's exactly soil. right. That's okay. exactly right. Now the amino acid nitrogen from soybean meal is going to be immediate. It's smaller particle size and potentially already digested into the constituent amino acids. So you're going to get amino acids faster, but they're both doing the same thing. They're ending up at the same place. And I'll add one more thing. I put out a video on my Instagram about amino acids a while back. And my point in that video was to say that when you drench amino acids to the soil, 
again, there's not a good understanding of how much of that is directly uptaken by the plant and how much of it is, is eaten by the microbes um, or converted by microbes into ammonium and then nitrate. These, so these pools are constantly in flux. And my argument is that, the again, just a tiny bit of, of research out there shows that the microbes feed very quickly. And so the majority of the liquid soy-based amino acids that we're applying are probably consumed by the microbes, not the plant. And there wasn't really a major reason other than to just try to point out what's happening in our soil systems, because even if the microbes eat those amino acids, they'll die and release organic forms of nitrogen back into the soil. It's a cycle. So it doesn't really matter. Um, but it's just interesting to think, my general belief is that the microbes feed first and, and amino acids can turn over in soil extremely quickly. So uh, anyway, that's just another small dynamic to for growers to understand and think about. So one thing that I'm a little unclear on is if the amino acids are, if, if nitrogen is in an amino acid form, um, is that different than nitrate and ammonium in a sense? It you, is. You it talked is. a little bit about that, what's happening inside the plant. You said if it goes into the plant, then it's converted to ammonium and then to nitrate, that's part of the nitrogen cycle. Why would that be superior to just nitrates in your soil, for example, where the plant's just taking up a nitrate? Yeah. So if a plant takes up a nitrate, it has to convert it twice. It essentially has to go in reverse. It has to convert it to ammonium and then amino acids to, to complex it into a leaf as a complete protein. So if, if the plant uptakes an amino acid, it doesn't have to convert it twice, which takes a huge... Um, there's a huge energetic cost to the plant. So if it takes it up as an amino acid, it can just put it directly into a protein and complex it into the leaf. So you're skipping two different steps inside the plant if the plant uptakes uh, an amino acid. And by amino acid, it, it technically any organic form of nitrogen. Um, so it could be other molecules besides amino acids. So then how do we correlate this with a soil test? Because on a soil test, we're primarily looking at nitrate levels. We want to keep ammonium levels very low in that nitrogen cycling process. Um, and, and yeah, the, you know, that's yeah. our metric. So how does that relate? Yeah, and this is, that is a million-dollar question because we're not testing. On a soil test, we're not testing organic forms of nitrogen. We're just seeing ammonium and nitrate. And we're making our management decisions based on those two things. And that's a limitation in soil testing. There are ways that labs can test organic nitrogen, but it gets complicated and confusing because there's different fractions and there's different, it's a totally different lab technique. And um, there's not a simple way to just test small uh, amino acids, the, the, the small fraction of organic nitrogen compounds, which is amino acids. So I wrote a long blog post about this called How to Manage Nitrogen Organically. It's for cannabis growers. It's on my, it's on my website. And I, I break this down. But to answer your question, Tad, more specifically, we are just using ammonium and nitrate. We get to see two out of the three pools of nitrogen. And so we don't get to see that third pool and we're just using ammonium and nitrate as a proxy um, to sort of understand how big those pools are because they are correlated. And so my, the reason I'm comfortable 
using ammonium and nitrate and not seeing that organic nitrogen pool on a soil test is because if the organic nitrogen pool is healthy, you will end up seeing ammonium and nitrate because the microbes convert. If there's excess organic nitrogen, excess amino acids, it ends up as nitrate. So when you see that nitrate number, you know, between let's just say 50 and 150, you know that there was at one point there was an excess of that organic nitrogen pool and it converted into nitrate. When you see the, the nitrate number low, usually that means there's not excess organic nitrogen in the system. And so those are sort of proxies, if that makes sense, to, to estimating how big that organic pool is. A lot of growers I know intentionally keep their nitrogen, their inorganic nitrogen, so nitrate and ammonium, they keep those pools low. So on a soil test, it might be 15 parts per million or something. And they feed those organic sources of nitrogen as the plant needs it. And I think they do so primarily based on visual symptoms and occasional tissue tests. So soil testing is flawed in that respect, in my opinion, for organic growers in particular. Um, you still want to know ammonium and nitrate. It's a good proxy for organic nitrogen, but it's, it's not a direct measurement. And then along those lines, that total nitrogen number that you can also get from on, on the standard test, that's not really showing us that either then, huh? The reason that one's not good is because it's also like if you imagine a chunk of alfalfa meal, that's not plant available. That's still a protein meal. So it's, it's still plant material. And so that nitrogen has not been enzymatically broken down, biologically digested into small enough organic nitrogen pieces, amino acids to be taken up by the plant. So that total nitrogen number is going to give you all the nitrogen in the soil, much of which is not yet plant available. So amino acids, they're the, the building box blocks of proteins. Proteins exist in these amendments like fish meal, um, blood meal, alfalfa meal they're talking about, specifically in relation to nitrogen here. Those get broken down biologically through nutrient cycling, microbial processes in the soil, in the rhizosphere. And then what's released from that is potentially all three forms of nitrogen is what you're saying then? We'll get some That's organic right. amino acids, some nitrates, some ammoniums, depend, some ammonium depending on uh, what's going on in the soil. That's right. That's a very good summary. Okay. And then these are all tied closely too to moisture content and oxygen gas exchange in the soil as well. Do you want to just touch on that? Yes. It's a, it's, the nitrogen transformations are, are highly dependent on on moisture and oxygen because they're biologically driven. But the third variable that I think actually matters even more is temperature. So the conversion, if you put in feather meal into your soil and it's cold, it could take weeks or months to really become available to, to, to be broken down biologically into those three nitrogen um, molecules. But in a warm soil, it happens very quickly. So, and obviously um, there's higher biological activity when soil moisture is optimal and when gas exchange is optimal. Um, when gas exchange is not optimal, the, the nitrogen can essentially, um, that cycle will get plugged up and there'll be more ammonium usually. Uh, but I almost never see that in a peat-based media. In any kind of living soil, 
I almost never see that just because gas exchange is pretty good. That would be a, a mucky topsoil, like a really clay heavy compacted muck. Um, what I do see is once you amend the soil or if you were to blend your soil, it would, there'd be so much um, organic nitrogen that goes into that system that the soil would cook and ammonium levels would spike for a period of time before they get, they go back down and get converted into nitrate. So if you were to test your soil right after amending, you could see high ammonium if that soil is biologically active as it's converting it to nitrates. Absolutely. Have you, have you seen that before? I just saw on that your... recently on a test um, and it kind of surprised me because I typically, when my brain, when I see uh, high ammonium numbers, I automatically go to unfinished compost. Um, mm -hmm. That's just well, it's, where, yeah. I, where I head. More and more, I'm thinking of peat-based media, or living, let me call them living soils because a peat-based media with a significant um, portion of compost. Mm -hmm. I kind of think of them like compost because they're, they're, bio, they're very biologically active and they're increasing in maturity over time through, through biological mineralization and, and um, fungal decomposition. And, and so... Yeah, it's unfinished compost is a great corollary. And essentially, when you throw a bunch of blood meal and alfalfa meal and bone meal and, and fish compost into peat moss and cocoa core, it essentially creates a little compost. I mean, it cooks. And that's what that temperature, when you, when you, when you like feel that temperature after you really mix a soil, when the temperature spikes, if you tested it at that moment in time, I'd almost guarantee that the ammonium would be elevated. Yeah. So what, what I, I aim to do when I'm amending a soil is I want to get as much in there at the beginning of a run that I can without going, without triggering that thermal process, because I don't want to wait for the soil to, you know, what we call cook, like a, like a thermophilic compost pile. So, um, the goal, and so the goal is then to amend at a rate that's high fertility, but low enough that we're not causing this explosion of microbial growth. That's causing this yeah. temperature increase. And that's, that's really the trick. I think, um, I, don't, I, I don't agree. Know, your thoughts on that? I, th I think the same thing. And I put a little note for, for growers who have received soil recommendations from me. There's a little note, uh, in the nitrogen, I have nitrogen tips. And one of them says, please let me know if your soil heats up because I want to know. Uh, so then I can adjust my rates to be wh what you said is right under that, that, um, that temperature increase. And uh, some products are more susceptible. I mean, blood meal is, is way more prone to, to creating temperature spikes because of the speed at which it releases. Um, just the properties of certain nitrogen amendments will sometimes cause that. And you can also and smell could, it sometimes. You can smell that ammonium um, volatilizing. Yeah, and so it's important to have your moisture content right, your temperature, you know, in your room. Is, if, if it's an indoor facility like I'm typically thinking about, it, the, the temperature is probably going to be there already. You don't have to worry about that as much. But I think uh, making sure you're not over or underwatering is really important to allow that process to occur um, the way you want it to. And uh, you can always add more, you know, a couple weeks later or a few weeks later to get to the, to get to your target. So you don't have to get it all in there at once. Um, just, just some other notes on that. That's right. That's right. Uh, and uh, 
since you talked about amino acids and the fact that we don't necessarily need to buy products that are labeled amino acids to get amino acids, uh, you know, I've recently seen some products that are, you know, called carbon-based fertilizers. Um, And this idea that because they're carbon-based, you know, they're superior to other fertilizers. Uh, You and I talked about this. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? Sure. So I think that the, in organic farming, that label is kind of meaningless um, because for the most part, most of our, or uh, let me back up. Not all of our nutrients are always carbon-based. So we were talking about potassium sulfate. We we're talking about gypsum. That's not carbon-based. So um, in general, there's a lot of benefit to to using nutrients that are carbon-based and that's kind of baked into organic farming when it comes to your phosphorus products and your nitrogen products and, and just, you know, the mineralization of organic matter. Um, so when someone says this is a, a carbon-based nitrogen product, it just, it, it doesn't, it's sort of a, a redundant or um, it doesn't mean a whole lot because all of our organic nitrogen products are already carbon-based it's gained a lot of popularity in conventional production because conventional growers are starting to realize that uh, there's a major metabolic and plant health advantage to incorporating carbon into their nutritional programs. So I think the terminology, the marketing terminology comes mostly from, you know, the conventional world, but I don't think it has a whole lot of meaning when it comes to when, when we're talking about organic uh, products. And I would add that when we're talking about living soils, you know, peat based soilless media, that's very biologically active. Um, we, we have high levels of carbon in, in those mixes already. Um, our organic matter is, you know, through the roof compared to anything you would see in actual soil. And, uh, it's really important to distinguish between living soil and real soil. Uh, I can't emphasize that enough. They're very different. They, it's like an apple and a banana or something or, you know, whatever, two very distinctly different things. Yes, both can grow plants, but they do it in entirely different ways. Um, and that's Definitely. probably a separate podcast, but I, I just think it's an important thing to, to remind folks of. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'll also mention that, um, like for example, when I fertigate and we, we talked about this earlier, when I fertigate micronutrient sulfates, so just going, just kind of tying this around when I need more manganese sulfate, maybe I'll put in 10 pounds per acre in an application. I always add a carbon, some kind of carbon source, whether that's molasses or kelp or usually it's humic acids that I dissolve overnight or even citric acid, it's carbon-based. So I always am aiming to apply carbon with any application that I do. And it's really easy to do that as an organic grower. You just, you just do the things I just said. And most people are very familiar with this, a compost extract, or if you're top dressing, you know, something you can apply with a little compost. And then once that goes into your soil, like you said, in a living soil system, there's so many carbon fractions in there um, from there's a lot of soluble carbon, a lot of active carbon, a lot of longer chained inactive carbon compounds in our compost and our peat moss. So a lot of this is just happening in our living soils naturally. 
Um, so it's not essential to necessarily do that because as soon as it hits our soil, it's a giant carbon sponge. Um, but in a topsoil system, I think it makes a lot of sense, especially in fertigation. But it, we don't necessarily need to buy bottled products that are carbon-based because we can just add a little humic acid or fulvic acid or molasses and do it ourselves. Very cool. So last question. Um, I know we kind of went over some of your favorite nitrogen inputs already and how you like to have multiple sources. We talked a little about your favorite calcium inputs. Can you just give me, and, and I don't want to, you know, dive too deep into this, but just some of your favorite, uh, phosphorus and, um, magnesium. I mean, well, I already know the one for magnesium, but go ahead. Yeah. Just some of your other major essential nutrient amendments, like what you like to yeah. use. Yeah, sure. So magnesium, um, really, I, I only think of two. One is Epsom salt and one is uh, langbanite. And langbanite I only use when potassium is also needed. It's kind of a, it's kind of a niche use case, honestly. Um, it's probably only in about 10% of my recommendations or less. So when I think plants need magnesium, I immediately go to Epsom salt and I, and I immediately go to Epsom salt and foliar. That's the first thing I think about. It's complete, it's totally inexpensive and it's super effective in foliar. And so the first thing I do is I hit my plants with a, with an Epsom salt foliar. And if they respond positively, it usually is an indicator that indeed they're low in magnesium. And then only then I would think about a soil dredge. Um, yeah, that, I think that covers mag, magnesium pretty well. I like to run magnesium <laughs> on the low side. So I do think growers I work with tend to see magnesium hunger because I like to just run it kind of on the lower end of the spectrum uh, because I like to, mac to maximize calcium and potassium uptake. Um, and it's so easy to feed that I don't necessarily want to load my soil with magnesium. It's better to keep it low and, and apply it as needed. I, do, I have found that different strains vary pretty widely in their magnesium requirements. So some of them just, just get hungry for it, kind of like a tomato. Tomatoes like it. Um, what were you going to say? Oh, I just want to add that I rarely see magnesium deficiencies on living soils where, you know, if you have, if you're mixing a living soil, you don't need to add a magnesium input. You're probably getting enough magnesium from your compost and other inputs. Um, I would just hesitate. I, I would not add magnesium unless you have a test showing you need magnesium because it has a lot of antagonisms like you kind of alluded to there. Um, it's going to, it's going to typically raise your pH with most of the things that you're going to add for it. And it's going to potentially tighten soil, not really the same thing in living soils, but just something that I want to caution users about. It's much easier to add more. You can't really remove it very effectively. Yeah. I would, I would add to what you're saying to, to, to say that I, I would, I think I probably see excess magnesium five to 10 times more frequently than I see, uh, uh, deficiency of magnesium. So I'm m way more common in my recommending growers leach excess magnesium out of their soil and stop the use of all magnesium inputs than I am seeing a deficiency. Um, but to, I, I want to add yeah, though, oh, sorry, with certain LED lights, I do sometimes seem to see uh, more magnesium hunger in certain cultivars. And I haven't found an exact correlation there. The first time I heard that, I didn't believe it, but um, I'm at the point now where I'm starting to see a lot more of this anecdotally, and I think it, I think it's really a thing. 
That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I see. Yeah, I, I do think magnesium hunger is quite common visually, um, and that's why I like that foliar application. I, I, I believe that works really, really well in in addressing light magnesium hunger. Um, but yeah, the LED thing's interesting. I've, I, I haven't. I don't have much experience with that or I haven't noticed that at least. So it's good to, it's good to think about that. I wonder how that would be. I think it's a spectral thing or maybe it's related somehow. I don't think it has related temperature, but those are the only two big differences between led lights and uh, other light sources is you get less uh, leaf, less rays and leaf surface temperature and potentially a slightly different spectrum. Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, I'm sure I have more thoughts on magnesium, but let's, let's move on to phosphorus in, in living soil. I really like to get most or all of my phosphorus in the soil ahead of the cycle through dry amendments. I think that's the the best way to do it. I mean, everything's going to bring in some phosphorus depending on your compost source. That's going to provide quite a bit. Again, slowly mineralizing over time. And then otherwise my go-tos are bone meal and soft rock phosphate. I used to recommend a lot of fish bone meal, but um, which has a percent higher nitrogen than bone meal, much better micronutrients, but higher sodium. So I like to, and, and actually a little bit less phosphorus. So you're getting more sodium, more micronutrients and more nitrogen per unit of phosphorus. So I, I just go with bone meal. It's a little cleaner um, in that, in that sense. And, and heavy metals is also a a consideration there. Um, I haven't seen high heavy metal levels in really any bone meal. So I like to have really sort of luxury levels of, of organically bound phosphorus in, in my soil at the time of, of transplant. But there's two sources I can think about organic sources of liquid phosphorus. If you want to feed additional phosphorus, one is a high phosphorus fish and it is a brand name. It's called CFOS. Um, and I still don't know how it's allowed in organic production because instead of stabilizing the fish with sulfuric acid, they stabilize it with phosphoric acid. And that pushes that, that, uh, phosphorus phosphate number up to 7%. So that's a really good tool in the toolbox. And the other thing I can think of, which is a little bit new, this is another update. I've been testing tons of Jadam and KNF inputs. So, um, for, you know, ferments and, uh, yeah, primary, I guess primarily ferments JLF, but just different plant juices. And the one trend across the board is that soluble phosphorus is really high in, um, fermented plant juices which is very interesting. So I don't recommend it. I don't use it, but it is, it is a use case for these, um, ferments is they're able to liberate quite a bit of phosphorus. I would say the other nutrient levels are, are somewhat underwhelming once you dilute them to their recommended dilution rates. Um, but phosphorus can be, you know, somewhere like 60 parts per million in some of these, um, fermented plant juices. So, yeah, I think that's sort of interesting to mention. I've seen cannabis JLF concentrate that tests at 27 parts per million of phosphorus. Now, all of these levels are going to depend on the nutrient status of the plant being used in the ferment. 
Um, but that's significant. So if you diluted that at, let's say, 1 to 20, you'd have a, a, a pretty healthy phosphorus application that's soluble. But all this can be a little bit of a moot point in the sense that, Tad, you still there? Sorry, everyone. This is when my internet cut out. I was really looking forward to this discussion, and uh, I wanted to share some of my feedback on uh, ferment tests that I've gotten back from growers, uh, actually showing pretty high chlorides and sodium. So um, maybe that's something that we can dive into together in a later conversation or possibly on Instagram Live or YouTube Live. But um, I'll definitely be following up with Bryant, and I really appreciated this interview. That was Bryant Mason, and you are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. Don't forget to check out the podcast page at www.kisorganics.com. Just click on the Learn tab, then Podcast. And just a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon channel with a free seven-day trial and tiers as low as $5 a month. We do book club, special cultivation tips and tricks, monthly video hangouts to connect and share your grow, and even give out seed packs and other gifts at certain tier levels. In fact, Steve Solomon is going to be joining us for our last meeting on the Intelligent Gardener book to answer any tips or any questions we may have about his book. So lots of fun stuff happening there. And your support of Patreon or sourcing your products through Kiss Organics is what supports the podcast, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening.